You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Controversial papers. We have one person who basically says Havel was wrong and just proceeds to tear him apart. Barbara and I both agree that he misreads Havel, but that's another story. Um, so her talk today uh, contains some uh, uh, Latin. It is entitled uh, Anus Mirabilis The Lessons and Legacies. Or make sense of this sort of domino-like 
um, you know, ending of state socialist or authoritarian regimes. Were they revolutions? Were they not revolutions? So before we go any further, let's talk about what that was. Uh, 1989 wasn't a great social revolution if we think of the kind of historical bar of great social revolutions, not like France, not like Russia, not like China. Um, but was it a Napolanda revolution, as Jürgen Habermas, the German social theorist, asserted that it was backwards looking? And that, by the way, was an insult. Uh, <laughs> what he meant by that was there was nothing new that 1989 offered. It was just kind of a a sort of a namby-pamby, liberal pastiche, really in the aftermath of what was the collapse of the Soviet uh, style of regime. No great novelty, no great new principles. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna off, I would still suggest that he's wrong about that. In the 1990s, I, I argued that he was definitely wrong about that. I think he's still wrong, but I would probably be a little more nuanced and probably a lot less um, optimistic than I was. Myself, among others, argued back in the 90s that 1989 was novel in a really important and critical respect, and that it was a revolution in the idea of revolution because of its principled commitment to nonviolence, what the Poles called self-limitation, what the Hungarians called radical reformism. You might counter-argue, okay, 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 fine, it was regime change, but was it really revolution? In this respect, I defer to my colleague, James Kreppel, which David has just mentioned, who in his detailed uh, history of the Velvet Revolution, both discusses and demonstrates that 1989 was actually experienced as revolution by the people themselves who were taking part in it. Um, and, and that's, I think, not inconsequential, and if we're gonna pay attention to history from below, we have to pay attention. Meanwhile, Michael Bernard and Jan Kubik, two, two scholars of Poland, suggested that 1989 as radical regime change was not only about what they call, quote, the reconfiguration of economic interests, the redistribution of political power, and the ordering of social relations, but also about the reformulation of collective identities and the introduction or reinvigoration of principles of legitimating power. So about identities, about legitimacy, and about redistribution. Um, not just experiences, um, as Krapel would say. That sounds kind of revolutionary to me, but I actually recently had a social media exchange with Michael and in which he definitively said 1989 was not about revolution. And I'm like, well, you just quoted you and Kubik on this and kind of said something else. But anyway, I left that one alone. I didn't want to mess with Michael's head too close to, to this talk. Uh, Patrick Kenny, a historian uh, in Indiana, and Aug Westhead, another historian at Cambridge, focused on the transnational and global nature of the Cold War. And they situate 1989 in a larger and longer sort of revolutionary fourth wave, using kind of Huntingtonian categories here, against authoritarian governments broadly. So it wasn't just about what happened in Eastern Europe, it was also about what happened in the Philippines, what happened in South Korea, what happened in Chile and Brazil and South Africa. So it was part of a bigger picture. Um, but as much as I think we need to think about the global 1989, we should avoid getting too caught up in any ideas about democratic inevitability. For one thing, I think that smacks far too much of historical determinism. For the purposes of where my thinking is now and for this talk, I'm gonna offer these two cautionary offerings about what 1989 was. Uh, first of all, it was revolution in the sense that there was mass mobilization 
and the creation of new political institutions and new order, as well as an effort to resist a restorationist impulse. Um, secondly, it did result in forms of democratization, maybe not fully legitimate democracy, uh, and we were too quick to jump on that bandwagon. Um, and that may be a desirable outcome of revolution, but it's really important, and 1989 teaches this too, that, and history has shown, that it is neither a necessary nor inevitable of, outcome of any kind of revolution, violent, nonviolent, social, transformative, or just experienced as revolution. Okay, so I'm gonna put that aside for now, <clears throat> and I wanna talk about what we should have known, what we should have anticipated. Here's the most important thing. We should have realized that this entire notion of nonviolent revolution would be so unbelievably seductive that we would want to make efforts to replicate it. And often simplistically, and often without any regard for the specificity or the uniqueness of what happened in 1989. So thus, really beginning in the late 90s, but proceeding into the early aughts, we get a kind of a re recipe-based regime change democratization industry. It happens in universities, it happens in think tanks, it happens through governments, it happens through global civil society. And it even happens, and I don't want to sound like a paranoid Vladimir Putin here, but to some <laughs> degree, it happens through the Soros Foundation as well. We should have realized that because global media traveled from capital to capital in 1989, exuberant and expectant about the next big thing, particularly after the Berlin Wall fell in, on November the 9th, that journalists, pundits, policymakers, and politicians would walk away thinking that this all happened super quickly. And this plays into the seductiveness of the replicability argument, right? The media played a role here. Uh, to with this sort of famous uh, press conference on November 9th between this sort of bumbling, you know, spokesperson for the for, for East Germany, Günter Schabowski, and you know, Western journalists who were like so pummeling with questions, he kind of <laughs> accidentally opens the Berlin Wall. Um, but those of us who made a point of studying dissidents and dissent, and for me, uh, that was the 1990s onward. But full disclosure, for my intellectual mentor Gordon Skilling, that went on for decades beforehand we should have spoken out more loudly and more often that 1989 did not happen quickly. It took decades. And for me, it's kind of like a parlor game. This is a fun parlor game to play with both undergraduate and graduate students. It starts with the question, when did communism fall or fail? At what point was dissent manifest? And I can come up with a list that I could keep you here for the next two hours. Let's start with, I don't know, the Kronstadt Rebellion. Let's start with the elimination of the old Bolsheviks through show trials. Let's talk about Trotsky's assertion that the revolution was betrayed. Let's talk about Stalin's death, or Khrushchev's secret speech, or the thaw, or initial citizen unrest. You know, Pilsen in 53, and Berlin in 53, Poland and Hungary in 56, the Prague Spring, 68, um, and then we've got Solidarity, the self-limiting independent self-governing trade union in Poland, um, and its brief legal existence. Uh, Charter 77, like we could go on and on and on with this game, right? Um, you know, uh, it's just the nature of politics. Politics begins to fail at the same time it's consolidating. I mean, that's the nature of social change. Um, but the larger point here, outside from this fun game, is that 1989 did not happen in a few weeks, a few months, or one year, okay? And by the way, some of the responsibility for this, I throw squarely on the shoulders 
of one British public intellectual, Timothy Gordon Nash, and it's like, who made this person for me to argue against? Um, on November the 23rd, 1989, and by the way, this is a smart, he's a beautiful writer, nothing wrong to say, he's a beautiful writer, great public commentator, and has this incredible knack of being in just the right place at the right time. So of course he's in Warsaw when, you know, Solidarity wins the elections, and of course he's in, you know, Berlin when the wall falls, falls on November 9th, so what does he do at that point? He hustles his bum off to Prague, arrives on November 23rd. Good timing, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> and shortly after his arrival in Prague, he makes this public statement, which gets repeated again and again and again. David smiles and he knows what it's going to be. In Poland, it took 10 years. In Hungary, 10 months. In East Germany, 10 weeks. Perhaps in Czechoslovakia, it will take 10 days, right? Uh, boy, if Tim Gartnash had a dollar for every time this thing gets cited, he would be a wealthy man. But what it does is it plays into this notion that in, do in a domino-like way, once it got going, boom, it was fast. And therefore, all we need to do is recreate the domino game in another part of the world, okay? We should have figured that out. We didn't. And I'll talk about how that plays into a decision to go in Iraq in a few minutes. We should have glanced or at least guessed at the depth and the impact of what uh, German thinker Klaus Ocke calls the triple transition. You have all at once, uh, and this part did happen quickly, political regime change, economic transition to market capitalism, and nation state building. Or in some cases, nation and state unbuilding, because that happened too. Uh, and we saw how nationalism could powerfully undo as well as make states, which frankly shouldn't have been surprising because that had been going on for like 150 years in Europe. So why were we so surprised? when Yugoslavia fell apart and you know, the Czechoslovakia experienced the, the Velvet Divorce. Keep in mind that 1989 happens at a particular global economic political moment. It happens at the exact ascendance and in fact reaffirms the ascendance of global capitalism. China had, joined, had opened up to joint venture capitalism in 1979. Rapidly industrializing states such as Taiwan, South Korea, Chile, and Brazil had already undergone some level of democratic transition, but after capitalism had proceeded rapidly in their countries, switching from import substitution industrialization to trade liberalization and export-led development. We should have known that privatization on a scale and rapidity unheard of in history would generate incredible levels of social, economic, and political dislocation. And who were the privatization experts, by the way? Uh, the Reagan, Thatcher, neoconservative establishment at the time. Miklos Horowski, who is a well-known Hungarian dissident, uh, sat me down as a young, you know, naive graduate student in a beautiful historic Habsburg cafe in Budapest many, many years ago. And his message to me was basically this. Look it. We had to privatize. We had to privatize a lot. Not like 10 or 20% of the economy or a few national inter, you know, industries that were really you know, corrupt or, or <laughs> incompetent and needed some, you know, the boot of competition to kind of get them going. This is, we're talking about the railways and the mines here. We're talking about 90% of the economy. Nobody had ever done this before. And by the way, who were the experts? These folks. It wasn't like the lefties were gonna help us privatize. These were the only people that had any experience whatsoever. They were the only experts on offer. And these folks were also the deregulation, deregulation fans. They were in charge and had promoted 
entirely marketplace solutions. So not surprisingly, the schemes introduced from shock therapy to privatization vouchers would be profoundly market-based, but not just market-based, oh no, market-based without any necessary supporting legal and political infrastructure to ensure fairness, transparency, accountability, the basic stuff like conflict of interest legislation, public auditing procedures and offices, none of that was there. And we should have known, because we should have looked at our own societies, that capitalism only functions well in concert with democracy when it is massively regulated and restrained. Those were the lessons of the Great Depression, the New Deal, and frankly, the 2008-2009 financial crisis. We should have figured that one out. We should have realized the extent to which, and this is gonna come across as perhaps a little in politically incorrect, maybe a little uncomfortable, particularly in the United States. I'm a Canadian, I can say this, we're all socialists north of the border, you know? Um, we should have realized the extent to which merely by existing, not being attractive, but just merely by existing, the Soviet Union served as an ideological and institutional alternative, politically, economically, ideolog ideolog ideologically, to Western capitalist democracies, and in a weird sort of way, they behave better because of it. <laughs> Simply by existing, capitalism was restrained because you always had to treat your work workers better or else. If you think I'm joking about this, I have a wonderful poster in my bathroom, you can find it online. It's this evil looking character with dark hair and shifty eyes, and he's kind of like this, right? He looks like a character of Nosferatu. And it's an advertisement for the Scott Paper Company. This is a real advertisement. You know, you know which That's one I'm talking about, right? And it says, is your bathroom breeding Bolsheviks? Right? <laughs> <laughs> so this is an actual early 1950s right? It's a classic. Yeah, yeah, you know it, right? And the implication is that, you know, if you don't have the nice, clean, soft paper towels, environmentally destructive also, but soft paper towels of the Scott Paper Company, your workers having to deal with the dirty roll paper, you know, linen roll, they're gonna be so upset with your company, they're gonna run out tomorrow, join the Communist Party of the United States of America, form that dangerous fifth column, and overthrow your government by force and violence. That is what is gonna happen. Such is the power of advertising in the 1950s. But, you know, as laughable as this is, there is kind of weirdly a point. Now, McCarthyism in the United States showed us the dangers of democracy responding in a paranoid manner to the notion of American communist reason for being and thinking that their modus operandi was only and ever only the overthrow of the US government by force and violence. Those are the trials I'm learning about right now that you could ask me about later. Um, or by suggesting even mildly that the Democratic Party was forever soft on communism. And by you see this, you see these tropes reoccurring now with you know Bernie Sanders being considered evil socialist, which I have to say, coming from Canada, is so laughable because the most right-wing Canadian politician is in favor of single payer. Like this is not a left-right thing; it's just a common sense thing. But anyway, that's just a message for you guys. Um, same with gun control; shouldn't be a left-right thing. Just what makes sense. Um, in any event, the point was that even the radical and social democratic left, even if they were lunatics, even they were unforgivably apologists for the excesses of Stalin, which is a nice way of saying, you know, torture and killing, um, even while blithely minimizing that violence and social, dis uh, social dislocation, just by existing, to some degree they held capitalism to account. Their advocacy and their activism suggested that democracy could use a little more equality 
in the freedom and equality narrative. In this country and elsewhere, my country included, support for workers' rights, women's rights, civil rights, they all began on the left. You know, what was the first political party in the United States to advocate desegregation? And decades and decades before any other party. You want to know what that was? The Communist Party of the United States of America. Okay? So, and by the way, if you read their stuff, they spend more time quoting, you know, uh, Lincoln and Jefferson than they do Marx and Lenin. It's a, it's a fascinating colloquialism. The problem is the people who talk to study, you know, American communism never really talk to the people that study East European communism, which I think is a terrible shame, and I'm trying to correct in my entire career, but I'll just put that as an aside. So we should have understood that the coexistence of democracy and capitalism is not natural, not inevitable. The post-89 story of this march towards progress, first join NATO, then join the EU, that this was naive and extreme. And by the way, precious few of the dissidents I interviewed in the 90s had any idea about economics or in particular market economics. And many blithely, stupidly, and naively accepted the rather false or at least very simplistic present, uh, premise that free markets and freedom always go together, right? Um, kind of bought into that a little bit. Um, forgetting that there are many of authoritarian or semi-authoritarian states that function very nicely with capitalism or more to the point, crony, corrupt capitalism with rent-seeking nepotistic elites who used public office for private gain. In much of South America, Africa, and Asia for many decades of the Cold War. So this shouldn't have been surprising. None of this should have been surprising. We should have figured this out. Okay, so if I'm being hard on what we should have figured out, what about the things that we really couldn't possibly have guessed at and yet, as things unfolded, we might have you know, intervened, at least in a public intellectual sense, in a way that was more intelligent. We maybe couldn't have known precisely how exactly the Washington consensus, in terms of trade liberalization, privatization, currency stabilization, would be applied exactly to the region. We maybe couldn't have known the exact speed in which various you know, regime change recipes were going to be imposed elsewhere. We could have paid a lot more attention to left-wing critiques of global political economy, mind you, who in the 1990s were reading pages of the Socialist Register, um, but we didn't. But we could have foreseen um, and should have foreseen the impact of the removal of the, the Soviet model of alternative capital. We might not have realized the extent to which it would be replaced by China. So remember, China's opening happens in 79, 89, that's only 10 years later. You know, a lot of the growth of China happens really starting in the late 80s and into the 1990s. China has demonstrated ably and adeptly that since 1979, a kind of ideological communism, so that commitment to the party state and um, the firmness of the ideology intact and the notions of official history, combine very nicely with joint venture state and private capitalism and can generate very high economic growth and deliver over many decades rising consumer and citizen expectations. Now, this also has to do with like the actual globalization of capitalism that happened at the same time, you know, um, decreased transportation costs, um, you know, disconnected supply chains. I mean, there's all kinds of other um, transnational economic things that are going on at the same time. China also reminds us about the other 1989, June 4th, Tiananmen Square, not only the day of the solidarity wins uh, all of the seats it's allowed to contest in the first Polish free elections, but it's also the day of the beginning of the crackdown in Tiananmen Square. And what 1989 Tiananmen shows us 
that history can be effectively erased. For how long? Frankly, we still don't know. But that violent crackdown can lead not to regime dismantlement, but actually to regime consolidation and, as long as you have a performing economy, even continued and improving legitimacy. That was not something uh, we could have really foreseen. Uh, we could not have foreseen how 9-11, that wouldn't have been in our horizon in 89, would have another chain of unintended consequences that would impact the region. Maybe we should have because of you know, the, the birth of you know, uh, radical groups out of the Soviet war in Afghanistan. Steve Call writes this wonderful book, Those Wars, that you know, really tells us what we kind of should and shouldn't know. But leaving Steve Call's argument aside, I'm going to suggest that um, it would have been really hard for us to understand that. But let's remember this. But for 9-11, there would be no set of what I call the forever wars of today. But for 9-11, there would have been no invasion of Iraq, no tarnished reputations of former dissidents like Havel, Michnik, Arasti, Conrad, and others who all supported the American regime change operation, thinking that this was somehow similar to American support to the region during the, for the Cold War, that, that somehow they bought into the humanitarian intervention, bringing freedom and democracy to the region. We could not have known how the triumphalist narrative of 1989, we won the Cold War, it's easy and fast, how that gets morphed through neoconservative you know, think tank and groupthink into this idea that we can spread freedom and democracy in the Middle East. We could not have foreseen how the 2000 invasion of Iraq drew upon narrative tropes and imagery, today we would call the memes, the toppling of statues, the notion that regime change could happen quickly, that welcome populations would be so thrilled that they would celebrate their newfound freedom and democracy. How wrong we were. In turn, we could have not have foreseen how one mistaken operation begat another phase of violent extremism. I subscribe to what I call the iron law of the Middle East, which as follows, it can always get worse. So when someone tells you it can't get worse, just say, no, wrong. It can always get worse. ISIS proved that. Um, we saw the rapid growth of ISIS, their ability to both market an attractive narrative, and it was an attractive narrative to its subscribers, control territory, and then exploit and exacerbate existing tensions already subject to post-2003 local media and political manipulation. Um, we couldn't have foreseen this, how this misinterpreting the speed of 1989, uh, the idea that this all happened quickly, would be or how difficult it would be to impose a recipe-based approach to nonviolent resolution elsewhere, and then lead to misinterpretation where it failed later, okay? This happens in Iran in 2009. It happens in Egypt in 2011. We shouldn't have doubled down on our misinterpretation, but we saw social mobilization. We saw millions of people move into squares, and we thought it might just be 1989 all over again. We knew that 1989 didn't happen overnight, but we still wished and hoped for the same kind of nonviolent regime change in Iran, Egypt, Bahrain, Yemen, and Syria. And where it did happen, complete with the you know, Jan Palach-like self-immolation of Mohammed Bouazizi in Tunisia, we didn't pay enough attention. I mean, who's studying Tunisia right now and bringing the lessons of Tunisia? Who's really looking about how some of the, what we really do know about 1989, what parts of that experience might usefully travel and might not, in a manner that plays 
attention to specificity and to what happened locally, but still the way in which we might draw some larger lessons. How many of us know here, for example, that for the last 54 weeks, 54 weeks, there are massive, and I mean hundreds of thousands of people, peaceful demonstrations in Algeria, in Algiers, week after week for 54 weeks. Who's paying attention to that right now? Thank you. Go here. <laughs> you should be. And thank goodness that you're here too. Um, what does that mean? Does that fit into larger stories we can talk about the power of the powerless and regime change? Do we know? Have we really looked at that super seriously? Uh, okay, now I could stop right now or I could tell you a little bit more about why 1989 was never like being in my lifetime. How dark do you want to go? Dark. Dark. <laughs> <laughs> to quote our national treasure, Leonard Cohen, you want it darker. <laughs> All right, so I've talked about why this is going to happen, and now I'm going to tell you some, my like best guess. Now this, this is where I go kind of all ranty and op-ed, as if I wasn't all ranty and op-ed enough before this. This is where I really go there. First of all, I would say the United States is not in the same position of global leadership. Um, the reputation of the remaining superpowers tarnished. That is not where the United States was in 1989. The decline of the soft power attractiveness not only of the US, but even of liberal democracy itself, coexists with the rise of illiberal, nativist, populist, uh, illiberal sentiment, which has undermined the legitimacy of the democratic project. That's pretty serious. We're also witnessing the return of great power multipolar politics, where global and regional leaders can effectively delegitimize internal dissent and checkmate revisionist politics, not only within their own borders, but within neighboring states within their zone of influence. Indeed, such approaches mesh very nicely with nationalist revisionism and populism as we have seen in Russia, China, and India. 2011, if nothing else, proved that you can't replicate 1989 in hyperdrive. The wonderful Turkish-American scholar named Zeynep Tufekci, she wrote a book called Twitter and Tear Gas. I strongly recommend it. And she talked about how digital technologies while enabling, like acting as a kind of a force multiplier where you can get millions of people in the streets really quickly, and we've seen that through social media. Um, but the very ability to do that, she says, creates something that she calls tactical freeze, whereby the ad hocracy and leaderlessness of movements make it difficult either to establish concrete demands or negotiate concrete demands. To be sure the internet and social media help us again in the social mobilization, but here's what you cannot replace, and this goes back to the 1989 being slow, not fast. You cannot replicate quickly the slow building of movements and co coalitions that enable social trust and the kind of de minimis consensus that you build over decades. So she contrasts in her work the decades and decades and decades it took to build even small successes in the civil rights movement in the United States with you know, efforts in places like Tahrir Square in Cairo. Asef Bayat, who wrote one of, I think, one of the best books on the Arab Spring, outlines some of the, what he calls the paradoxes of limited, or you know, this kind of radical reformism, you know, using the same kinds of words, revolutionary, revolutionary approaches of the Arab Spring, painfully made clear. When people herd in large numbers into town squares, 
or frankly into you know a, a park in lower Manhattan and create something called Occupy, also in 2011. They're very creative disruption, especially when the numbers are really big as they were in parts of the Middle East. Um, they're very creative disruption and their heightened expectations meet, means meeting those expectations at the same time an existing regime, no matter how very corrupt, can't deal with the overload of the disruptive nature of the demand. So delivering any on any kind of expectations is difficult in the short term. That's a logistical problem to some degree, but here's something worse. States such as China, North Korea, Iran, Syria, and Egypt are far less tolerant of dissent than the rulers of late communism. Post-Stalinism, and here's where I wanna really push back against the memory politics of the region that tries to elide any distinctions between the Stalinist era and what came later, which is just, it's a great way to use and abuse history for you know, the politics of the present, but it just is also a great way to get history wrong. Um, Post-Stalinism, Post-Stalinism repressed people, limited choices, but were relatively safe and secure if you didn't challenge the regime. If you weren't, to go back to Havel's you know, parable with the greengrocer, if you didn't rip the sign, workers of the world un uh, unite out of the window, you could live your life. You could have a measure of dignity, and you, know, you could even have you know, your basic consumer needs met, all the rest of it. After the 1950s, let's be clear, dissidents were arrested, but they weren't tortured. National party states avoided purge trials and executions. Increasingly, contemporary Russia does stifle the effectiveness of opposition and any, ch any challenges to the ruling hegemony, but they're not going back to any kind of you know, Stalinist kind of era either. And even under late communism, law may have been deeply politicized, but law there was an irrational process of technocratic bureaucratization ensured a social safety net for all and advanced education and economic opportunities for many, especially, of course, for the kids of the nomenclatura. Hmm. Um, but it existed. If that technocratic legal rationality didn't exist, then the dissidents wouldn't have been successful using the Helsinki Accords to push forward their legal agendas. I mean, of course some kind of socialist legality had to exist. Both the instrumental demonization of communism for political ends and communal nostalgia still exist, both of which make any clear-eyed and honest assessment of the past very difficult. Aviezer Tucker, whose work on post-totalitarianism, even though he uses the word totalitarian, and I'll disagree with him on that, he points out very ably in a recent book that only rough justice, what he calls rough justice, was possible during and after the transition because there was such a long period of inequities, and the inequities of state socialism were built upon the inequities of the Second World War. So there was no way in ever dealing with people's demands and expectations about retribution and restoration, given the overall costs and procedural challenges involved. And it's not like the rest of the world was coughing up any kind of Marshall level, you know, Marshall plan type of level of support. It wasn't happening. This meant um, that such processes, because they were piecemeal, because they were half done because they could only do so much or were limited by policy description from the beginning, have fed conspiracy theories about the change of 1989. Ah, the dissidents and the, you know, they were all, it was all, they all planted together with big specs, as well as generating real grievances and legitimation challenges. Um, so rough justice, deeply politicized, late communism, or deeply politicized, 
law, but still law under late communism, but still a safer place to be, obviously, than you were living in, I don't know, parts of Allende's Chile, or parts of Guatemala, or you know, Iran, I mean, lots of other places that weren't as safe um, as uh, state socialism in the, in the 80s. And here's where uh, today I think it gets difficult now. We now have, and this is an unpopular thing to say, and I teach international criminal law and post-genocide justice, so trust me, this is really an unpopular thing to say. We have an international legal regime, the International Criminal Court, um, the former tribunals for US law in Rwanda, the whole idea was to make it impossible for people to escape uh, impunity after engaging in any kind of deliberate mass atrocity violence, particularly against UN citizens. But here's the thing, this entire paradigm disincentivizes any ruthless authoritarian from actually peacefully stepping away from power. You've got someone like Bashir al-Assad in Syria, he has no choice but to fight to the end for his version of Syria. Because unlike in the 70s and 80s, there's no soft landing for him in the south of France. He doesn't get a place in Hawaii like Ferdinand Marcos. No, he doesn't get that. He gets the reach of universal jurisdiction and the chances that his ending will be in some little dank prison cell in The Hague. So if you're Bashir al-Assad, that's a different opportunity structure. You don't have any other option, okay? Um, He's got no choice but to fight for his version of Syria, which he has done with the help of the Russians, and he will win. It's hard to imagine anyone like Kim Jong-un willingly giving up power or any domestic forces of nonviolent dissent having any chance of success, right? North Korea is remarkably autarkic, uh, relatively immune to even the smartest of sanctions, and does not hesitate one iota to crack down on even the tiniest amount of dissent. Uh, we also have in the international universe now, which is supposed to be progressive and you know shows the kind of normative development of human rights and international law, something called responsibility to protect, which has also made, I would argue, nonviolent revolutions much less likely. Given the disastrous consequences of the UN-backed mission in Libya, which went very quickly from R2P to we gotta get rid of uh, Gaddafi, it's made it pretty much 100% unlikely that Russia or China will ever support, let alone abstain, from any kind of United Nations Security Council resolution trying to advocate some kind of blue helmet mission to deal with some mass atrocity violence happening somewhere because they will just suspect mission creep as they saw in Libya. So generally, you have authoritarian states that are far deadlier and more punitive than their post-Stalinist counterparts, and they're more deadly also in response to uh, resistance and dissent. And here's the kicker. This is the part that really drives me wild. They have learned the lessons of 1989, because they're smart authoritarians, right? So after the failure of the Green Revolution in Iran in uh, 2009, if you were following the, the, the news coming out of Iran at the time, they were all over the fact that they were against anything that smacked of quote unquote velvet revolution, right? And these so-called velvet revolutionaries were the ones that you know basically had a one-way ticket with a trial or not to F in prison for the rest of their lives, if not an actual execution. Um, so they've learned that you know tolerating a little bit of dissent doesn't go so well for you, um, and that 
Iranian fixation with prohibiting a belt revolution, ongoing Russian accusations of deliberate American government sponsorship of so-called Kabul revolutions happily coexist with all kinds of other weird conspiracy theories, um, often which are also often deeply anti-Semitic, um, deeply anti-American, um, and in a weird sort of way, the United States has unwittingly fed this narrative via its post 9-11 parade of interventions and triumphalist discourse both in government, policy, and academic circles about winning the Cold War. Did they really win the Cold War? I don't know, I think when the other side collapses, you can't really call it a win. It's not the same kind of thing. The assumption that the rec replication of 1989 is both possible and desirable ignores much of the very unique character of the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, where you had, a, again, these are things that are really hard to repeat, a willfully retreating hegemon. Oppositions in waiting given decades, let's be clear, decades uh, long cultivation of dissent, weak and non-performing governments, Western governments that were holding into account for their weak and non-performing governments. Uh, in some cases, uh, countries that had previous experiences with democracy, that shared culture, that shared history, that shared borders um, with Western democratic states, and populations willing to exit literally uh, with their bodies and their voice and their loyalty to, uh, to quote Arthur Hirschman. These are not small differences. Nonviolence worked in 89 because of discipline, social trust among non-government opposition forces, but also because the leaders in withdrawal hesitated to use force. And they knew at a certain moment the Soviet Union wasn't gonna back them up, and they probably, realistically, couldn't even necessarily depend on their own internal security forces backing them. So that is kind of the source of my dark place. Um, I'm gonna quote um, the Cold War historian John Lewis Gaddis. In his excoriating analysis of how and why political scientists generally, my entire discipline, basically, got the end of the Cold War wrong, because he didn't see it coming, failed to see the forest for the trees. Uh, in terms of the potential collapse of communism, he coolly reminded us, and I quote from Gaddis, the end of the Cold War could turn out to be the precursor of something worse. My argument is that we may be, in fact, I think we already are, in the middle of that something worse. Many people, myself included, we really wanted to believe that 1989 were like the nonviolent betters of the American Revolution, categorically unlike Russia, China, France, that they could serve as a model for democratizing the future. But the question that I pose to myself and pose to all of you is, what if we were all 100% completely wrong? I know. So please push back and make me a happier woman on Thursday. <laughs> yes? Yeah, um, for me, I think the most significant uh, thing of 1989 was that it was a brilliant demonstration of the domino theory at work. Uh, backwards. Well, that's my yeah, point backwards. exactly, that it was. It wasn't the spread of communism, but the retreat of communism, which according to the political so-called experts of that time, was something that couldn't happen. A country once gone communist could not. Yeah. Could you guys, the, the younger people here all know what the domino theory was? <laughs> okay, good, just, just double checking. You and I are of a similar vintage, just wanted to double check. Right. Yeah. I was also going to make the point, um, one exception to your concept of a more benevolent form of communism would, would have been Albania, which, right. not surprisingly, was also the last 
of the countries uh, to fall in the domino wave of 89-90. I mean, and it, but for the domino, probably wouldn't have. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But I mean, in Albania, there still were purges and political trials and yeah. all sorts of political intrigue uh, that was reminiscent of the Stalin era. Yes. So, I mean, in your, and thank you very much. This is a very, you know, provocative and, and strong uh, position. Uh, what about the issue of uh, national uh, sovereignty? So, Eastern European revolutions, 1980, they, they weren't, in my take, you know, they certainly weren't exclusively impressed, not even so much about uh, pro-democracy, pro-capitalism as anti-Soviet. Yeah. These are people who felt that their country had been uh, occupied by a foreign military power, and they had been forced to adapt this system against their will. And is there, there not some liberatory aspect of the fact that they're able to at least cast off that t 
high blood pressure. Maybe in exchange for another, you might feel more insidious. But should well, we I think in a weird sort of a way that kind of feeds into Euroscepticism and illiberalism towards the European Union, right? Because that feels like another nameless, faceless bureaucracy coming from <laughs> Brussels telling us how to, you know, grow pickles or define cheese or whatever else, right? So we've traded one form of oppression for another. So yeah, I mean, I think you're right about, you know, in terms of assertion of sovereignty. Um, but I also think that in itself, be, you know, becomes a loop that gets, you know, dangerously subject to, you know, misinterpretation. You know, I mean, I, you know, uh, so I live in a country that is more decentralized than the European Union. Seriously, Canada is amazing. Canada, by the laws of federalism, shouldn't exist, right? So when you do a trade treaty with Canada, you have to get all the provinces to agree. It's really, they all have to be there. It's crazy. Um, we have no national standards. We have a Supreme Court decision that says it isn't like that. But here's the interesting thing. If you're a provincial premier in Canada, your job is to bash Ottawa. That's basically your job description, right? And when you're a leader of a national government in Europe, you're, part of your job description is to bash Brussels. <laughs> so no, seriously, that's what you do. So to some degree, this kind of sovereignty Euroscepticism is built into the model. And I think because of exactly what you highlight, it actually makes um, the Central Euro and East European entrance to the European Union, and it probably happened too quickly and probably not integrated well enough, and I don't want to get in a side story about that, but then, then it creates this other weird set of unhealthy political dynamics too, which we still see. It's not surprising that that's you know, the hotbed of you know, anti-EU stuff, generally speaking, is Eastern Europe. Right? And it's kind of crazy-making. Because you know you want to you know you, you want to go to that small town in Poland and you say you know but for the EU you wouldn't have that highway or those nicely recobbled streets or you know that totally beautifully redone train station but you know doesn't matter. I'm ready to speechless. No, hello. Yes. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I was thinking a little bit when you came to the area of uprising. You mentioned several factors that um, your gun friends being kind of unique to the 1989 revolution. Yes. And I wonder if you see any of them as more or less actually in the conclusion of the era of uprising. So I was thinking in terms of like the importance of having these activities, right, to create this kind of movement. And I feel like you do have groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, which you know is controversial, but has had a very extensive history of both social service provision in some of the states and and gets totally demonized through the lens of terrorism. So not helpful. So it's like yeah. look, yeah, punch that language a little bit. Yeah, yeah, right, but but I think in terms of the social <coughs> cohesion that you even mentioned and there there do seem to be some aspects that are present in some of these other cases, whereas maybe the part that perhaps needed most was the ability and willingness of the military to side with the regime and not. Yeah, and we, and we saw that with Ukraine, more or less, I guess, into the cases that we've had more recently. I don't know. Okay. Is my honest answer. I don't know. I do think we need, if we want to be like serious political scientists, and I'm afraid I'm not enough of a serious political scientist, we got to do more of the kind of research that pays attention to that level of kind of detail. And you know, it's not really political science. It's almost I don't know, comparative historical sociology, something like that. I don't know. But I don't think we've done that well. Yeah, uh, you made a few comments about the CPUSA. I mean, you're correct that they adopted a lot of causes like the sharecroppers and the blacks during the 
depression, but I guess for me, the real question about the credibility of the CPUSA comes from the disclosures that they were heavily financed directly uh, from Moscow, and that disclosure on that uh, subject that came out, I think, the in Moscow the 80s. Gold, yeah. mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> I was like, you, you can make a joke out of this, right? There's good news and bad news about the, about the Communist Party. The bad news is 500 American communists were spies for the Soviet Union. The good news is somewhere between 49,995 words, right? So there's that. Um, there's a lot of debate about the Moscow gold and especially how it you know, may have lined the pockets of former CPSA leader Doug Hall. It wasn't a lot of money, actually, in either real or even then terms. Um, and, and, and I don't even know why it's kind of so breathtakingly surprising in this country, because that's what the Soviet Union did. They funded its, you know, their like-minded political movements around the world. Oh, by the way, so did the United States. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I fail to understand why this is uh, just so earth-shattering. But well, hey, mm -hmm. I have a kind of insider-outsider opinion of your own. <laughs> And you know, they financed the Canadian party too, but to a much mm -hmm. lesser extent because we were so inconsequentially unimportant. Yes. So I, I definitely agree with you that you know there are a lot of disincentives for, for dictators, especially one world, you know, the ICC and other yep. RGB. But to think think through the, the argument you're making, you know, we want to be you know finding ways to incentivize or turn authoritarian regimes to look like trying to have this hardline position, you know, first with Eisenhower and then later with Kennedy and successive both Republican and, you know, Democratic presidents, they realized engagement was the way to, to you know, and, and to, back when I was a, an undergrad student, uh, anyone old enough here of my age will replace, there was an old theory called convergence. Remember convergence theory? Yeah, convergence theory, right? That we were, over time, there were gonna be so many exchanges, and that you know the good Soviets would see our way of life, and we would see kind of the good stuff of what they were doing, and that we wouldn't be ever. And by the way, this was also at a time of kind of you know welfare state, you know, regulated capitalism. That they would become more open, and we would become regulated, and over time we would kind of converge. I mean, it seems like naive and stupid in the extreme, but maybe what you're getting at—not the naive and stupid version—but the idea that well, is there some way we can incentivize? you know, really nasty authoritarians to behave better. Maybe, you know, maybe with, you know, better, smarter sanctions. Like, I don't know, why is your country and mine selling shitloads of military equipment to Saudi Arabia? That doesn't seem to me like a great way to get them to behave better. You know, so yeah, maybe, but have we really done that? No. But hey, maybe you're on something. So it's sort of the opposite of containment then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know. Yeah, since you briefly mentioned it, could you go into a little more detail about the type of research you're doing now about political trials in the West? Oh, shall I go there, David? Yeah. Okay, well, so <laughs> now I'm, I'm writing a book that will probably never happen because I started getting the idea to write it in 2002 and then I started writing it in 2011. And I'm still waiting for freedom of information requests out of your government that I've been waiting for. 
for eight years. Anyway, I've got about half of them. Um, I'm writing a book that looks at political trials in the East in what I call the early hot phase of the Cold War with political trials in the West. And I'm comparing two landmark trials in Eastern Europe, the Reuss trial in Hungary in 1949 and the Slansky trial in Czechoslovakia in 1952 with the Rosenberg-Sobel trial in uh, 1951 in the United States with the Smith Act trial, the, big, the first big Smith Act trial in 1949. And then I got sort of sidetracked thinking I would just write a book on the Smith Act trials, which I think I still want to do, but because I'm waiting for all this FOIA stuff, I'm actually going back and doing the comparative book. But my, my goal in my life is to write the tell-all book about these uh, 16 trials that happened in America from 1949 to 1956, which basically resulted in you know prosecuting a political party to death. Um, not because they were um, traitors, not because they were engaged in any level of sabotage, not because there were any arms caches or plans to overthrow the government. The charge here is the best. They were charged with conspiracy. It's a conspiracy charge. You don't have to have done anything right. law for a conspiracy charge. Mm -hmm. Conspiracy to teach and advocate the overthrow of the U.S. government by force and violence. Not to overthrow the government. Not to attempt to overthrow the government. Not even to teach or attempt the overthrow of the government. But a conspiracy to teach and advocate the overthrow of the U.S. government by force and violence. And for that, about over 130 Americans were found guilty. And in the papers, they were the leadership, the, you know, the real national baddies of the American Communist Party. I interviewed, by sheer luck, the last remaining Smith Act trial survivor, who was a lovely retired scholar in uh, Philadelphia. His name was Sherman Leibovitz. And his exalted position as a party leader was that he was the circulation manager for the daily worker in Philadelphia. And for that, he was put in prison. So that's what I'm going to show now. The Rosenberg trial, you know, lots of, you know, absolutely, yes, did Julia spy? Yes, Julia spy. Yeah. Do we have any evidence on Ethel? No, that's a subject for a whole other uh, discussion. But there you go, that's what I'm working on now. David. Well, I, 